Father, I pray that you would uh, speak to us through your word now. I pray that your word would come to us, not in word only, but in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. And as we just sang, that the Spirit guarantees our hope. God, I pray that you would work through your Spirit to uh, make us feel more guaranteed of the hope that we have in Christ through your Word. And we also pray, again, that you would work by the power of your Spirit in hearts who hear my voice, who may not know you, that they would call on your name today and be saved in accordance with your promise. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you would open your Bibles, please, to Acts 2. Acts 2. Um, a couple of weeks ago, we began to consider together the importance of what happened on the great day of Pentecost. And we'll continue doing that today. Uh, at Pentecost, in Acts 2, God began fulfilling one of His greatest promises. The Holy Spirit came in power upon all of God's people. So Jesus died for his people's sins and rose from the dead. Three days later, he was with his disciples appearing to them over the course of 40 days after he rose from the dead. Then he ascended to heaven. And then 10 days later, this happened. From his throne in heaven, at the Father's right hand, Jesus baptized all of his followers in the Holy Spirit. And Jesus has been doing that ever since for anyone who trusts in Jesus for salvation. Everyone who follows Jesus as his disciple, Jesus gives to each one of them, without exception, the gift of the Holy Spirit. He gives them the very same gift that he poured out on his people at Pentecost in Acts 2, even though the same supernatural signs don't come with it. Well, that day of Pentecost uh, began a new era of the Spirit's work in the world, which continues still today. The Spirit was at work in God's people prior to Pentecost too, in various ways. The Spirit worked in the hearts of all who were true believers in the Old Testament, that's the only way they could have become true believers. The Spirit converted their sinful hearts and caused them to trust in God's promises and want to repent of sin. And also the Spirit worked in a few Old Testament believers to empower them for some ministry and set them apart for special service to God. People like prophets and kings, some judges, others. But beginning at Pentecost, this is right after Jesus died, rose, and ascended. And in fact, because Jesus died, rose, and ascended, now the Spirit began to work in God's people in a new, fuller manner. And perhaps that's why Jesus chose the imagery of baptism to describe this new experience of the Spirit. Now, the word baptism means immersion. Uh, or to plunge, or submerge, or, or dip, describes a full-body experience. And in the days leading up to Pentecost, Jesus told his disciples in Acts 1-5, not many days from now, I will baptize you 
In the spirit, I will fully plunge you into the spirit. So I think the idea in part is, is that there would be a new fullness to the spirit's work in Christ's people from then on that, that they hadn't known before. And this Pentecost gift of the spirit, as I indicated, is something that all Christians now have. All believers have a share in this new, fuller ministry of the Spirit. 1 Corinthians 12 makes that clear. In verse 13, it says, In one Spirit we were all baptized into the one body. Jews, Greeks, slaves, free. We all were made to drink of one Spirit. This sounds like something very good. It is. But what does it actually mean for us? What is this new, fuller work of the Spirit that the people of God now enjoy in union with Christ beginning at Pentecost? Well, God explained the gift when He gave it in Acts 2. And He did it in this way. When the Lord filled those disciples with the Spirit. He also filled the room that they were in with supernatural signs to help show the significance of the gift he was giving. And then the Lord put a sermon in Peter's mouth to further explain the significance of the gift of the Spirit. So by special signs and by a special sermon, the Lord made known what a special gift he was giving when he gave the Spirit. If you have been saved... Through faith in Christ, do you know what a special gift you have in having the Spirit? Learn from Acts 2 today. The explanatory signs God sent are described in verses 1 through 4, which reads, When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues, other languages, as the Spirit gave them utterance. So those were the three signs of Pentecost. The sound of a rushing wind the sight of tongues of fire, and the speaking of foreign languages, which the speakers didn't know previously. And then after the signs of Pentecost, the sermon of Pentecost began in verse 14, where we read, Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you, and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And then Peter quotes the prophet Joel. Joel 2, to explain the signs that were being seen and heard. And that quotation of Joel goes through verse 21. Well, that's the passage we began looking at two weeks ago. You'll see at the top of your uh, sermon outline in your bulletin, this is a part two sermon. So we'll finish this passage today. First, I want to briefly revisit those main points we saw two weeks ago, expand on them a little bit, and then we'll spend the rest of our time, which will be the majority of our time, 
looking more deeply at the parts of this passage that we didn't spend as much time on in the last sermon, and, and that will be verses 5 through 11, and also verses 19 through 21. So, to begin understanding the gift of Pentecost, a gift we also have, we saw two weeks ago that when Christ gave his people the gift of the Spirit, he gave them the gift of God's indwelling presence. The gift of God's indwelling presence. So, so the fire and the wind in the room in verses 2 and 3, that signified the holy presence of God. And these kinds of signs had in previous times represented God's presence dwelling in the midst of his people. Signs like these appeared at the top of Mount Sinai, and then in the sacred tabernacle, and then again in the temple in Jerusalem, which was the place that God planted his presence amongst his Old Testament people. So when, when these signs show up in this room around and above the disciples, it showed that God had chosen a new special dwelling place on the earth. No longer would it be a temple in Jerusalem. Now it, it was the Christians, the people, they, the, the, the ones who belonged to Jesus. They themselves were the new holy temple of God. They were the place that he chose for his name and presence to dwell on the earth moving forward. So ever since Pentecost, the closest you can get to God's holy presence on earth is to be near a Christian. And if you are a Christian, wow, you're the temple. Right? The living God, the living Christ dwells in you through the indwelling spirit. Your heart is like a new holy of holies. It was cleansed and sanctified to be God's dwelling place by the atoning death of Christ. So now the most sacred place on the earth, if I could put it that way, is any gathering of true Christians. This is the gift of Pentecost, God's indwelling presence among us. And we don't think about this reality enough. Remembering this truth, it should sweeten your fellowship with God. It should strengthen your resolve to obey God from the heart. This is a powerful truth that Christians have the gift of God's indwelling presence. And if you're a believer, I, I want to challenge you to not be satisfied with simply knowing the fact of this truth. Seek to know more the life-changing power of abiding in this truth of God in us by the Spirit. Now, the second main point we saw last time we were in this passage, which helped us to understand the gift of Pentecost, we saw when Christ gave his people the gift of the Spirit, he gave them the gift of God's empowering presence. The gift of God's empowering presence. And, and Jesus taught his disciples to think this way about Pentecost before it happened. He told them a new empowerment was coming with the Spirit baptism in Acts 1.8. He told them, you will receive power when the Spirit comes on you. Power for what? You will be my witnesses. And around the same time, Jesus told his 
disciples at the end of the Gospel of Luke. I am sending the promise of my Father on you. That's the Spirit. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Well, that happened at Pentecost. When Jesus sent the Spirit from heaven, He was clothing His disciples with power from on high. And all of them received this clothing of Spirit power. It wasn't just the apostles, it was every disciple of Jesus. And then to prove beyond a shadow of a doubt that each Christian had received this special gift of empowerment, God gave a special sign. And each one of them began to prophesy. Verse 4 says, They were all filled with the Holy Spirit. They began to speak in other languages as the Spirit gave them utterance. The Spirit immediately gave them inspired words to speak. They spoke words of prophecy in other languages they hadn't known before. And I'm saying the gift of tongues was prophecy because that's what Peter told us in his Pentecost sermon that uh, that's what was happening. Verse 16, he said, this that you're hearing and seeing, this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. In these last days it shall be, God declares, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. And the same points made in the second half of verse 18. In those days I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. So they were speaking words from God under the inspiration of the Spirit that were just as Spirit-inspired as the words from God that are written down in Scripture. It was real prophecy. That's what the gift of tongues was. That, that's one reason we, we don't uh, understand what some people call tongues today to actually be tongues. This was real prophecy that was being spoken. Now, I'm not going to go back through, uh, though I'm tempted, to go back through all of this like we did in the first sermon. You can uh, revisit that on the website of our church if you'd like. But just to summarize, the conclusion we saw was, was that the purpose of this initial spurt of prophecy was to show that everyone in the room had received the Spirit to empower them for ministry and for witness. And this was the best proof Right? They couldn't have truly prophesied unless they were being carried along by the Holy Spirit. So Joel's words really were coming to pass. The Spirit was poured out on all flesh, as verses 16 and 17 point out. Male and female, young and old, even lowly servants. All right, well, this is the gift of Pentecost in this new era of the Spirit's fuller work. It's not just a few people who are anointed and set apart to serve the Lord with spirit power enablement. The gift of God's special empowering presence belongs to every believer. Now, we don't think about this reality enough either. Do you realize, if you're a Christian, that you walk around clothed with heavenly power, to serve God in accordance with how the Spirit has chosen to gift you and in accordance with how the Spirit opens opportunities for you to do so. What if you resolved to meditate on this truth prayerfully before God every day this week? 
or every time you're in certain situations this week. And imagine what difference that could make if, if prayerfully you remind yourself of this truth. Jesus has clothed me with power from on high. He has baptized me in his spirit. Now, I'm sure that uh, many Christians think, I certainly don't feel like I have divine power at work in me, enabling me to witness to unbelievers and to serve believers and minister to them. I suppose you also don't feel like you have God's presence dwelling in you either. You need to remind yourself that the ultimate measure of reality is not how you feel in any given moment. The ultimate measure of reality is what the Word of God says. And what the Word of God says is that if you trust in Christ for salvation, then God's presence and God's power is living and working in you. Jesus has outfitted us with the spirit clothing that we need to be able to serve his body and share him with others. All right, I'm plowing brand new ground now. This initial spurt of prophecy that was uttered by all the Christians at Pentecost, that was not only meant to prove that the Spirit had come to empower them for their mission. Uh, this miracle was also meant to teach them something about the nature of their mission, or, or we could say that it was meant to teach them about the scope of their mission, which the Spirit was empowering them to accomplish. Okay, so think about this. Why, why did God choose for the special evidence of Spirit empowerment, speaking some words of prophecy when the Spirit first came, why did that happen with the added wrinkle that they spoke those inspired words in foreign languages? Well, here's one. The Spirit inspired them to speak in the different languages of the world to show that the good news of Jesus would bring together the different nations of the world into one people of God, into one kingdom. That's the next big lesson this scripture teaches us about the gift of Pentecost, which we've received, hallelujah. When Jesus gave his people the Spirit, he gave them the gift of God's unifying presence, the gift of God's unifying presence. The Spirit binds people together from all over the globe into one body in Christ. And this purpose of the gift is plainly seen in Acts 2. Right after the disciples are filled with the Spirit, what happens next? Well, we see why God made it happen. It's because a lot of people who naturally spoke those Languages are close by, all around. So, so after verse 4, they all began to speak in other languages. Immediately in verse 5 we read, Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound the multitude came together and they were bewildered, because each one was hearing them speak in his own languages. So the Spirit caused the Christians to prophesy in other languages, especially for the sake of this international crowd who had gathered in Jerusalem to celebrate the holiday of Pentecost. Jesus told his disciples in, in preparation for Pentecost, 
when the Spirit comes on you, you will be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. And so then, at Pentecost, as a display of that, Jesus brought the ends of the earth to Jerusalem and enabled them to speak the mighty works of God to them. Right off the bat, when the gift of the Spirit is given, the global scope of the mission is highlighted. They're right there on the scene, men men from every nation in the known world. And the disciples are able to speak in the languages that will reach them. Okay, the gift of the Spirit at Pentecost was kicking off a global mission to save a global church for Jesus. And this multinational gathering was very perplexed by uh, all of these different languages they heard all of a sudden, and they were especially puzzled because it was clear that the speakers were not a multinational group. It was clear they weren't language scholars because they were all Galileans. That's part of the shock. Look at verse 7. They were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each one of us in his own native language? So Galileans, they were uh, stereotypically uneducated and uncultured. They were country people who talked funny. They spoke incorrectly. Uh, One commentator gave more specifics and reported that the people from Galilee in those days, quote, had difficulty pronouncing guttural sounds used in languages and had the habit of swallowing syllables when speaking. So they were looked down upon by the people of Jerusalem as being provincial, which which means countrified and unsophisticated, not not properly educated or or cosmopolitan. Well, we see one example of this in the Gospels. Do you remember when Peter was accused of being a disciple of Jesus when he denied him? One accuser said, certainly this man was with Jesus, for he too is a Galilean. How did they know that? Another accuser said, Certainly you, Peter, are one of them, for your accent betrays you. A group of Galileans, like like Jesus' early disciples, this was just about the last group of people that you would expect to find speaking all the different languages of the nations. Perhaps God was sending an early message that the uniting of the nations in Christ It was not going to be accomplished by the intellect and gifts of men. It was going to be accomplished by the power and gifts of the Holy Spirit. Don't underestimate the power of the Spirit to use you for ministry and for witness. God loves to use the Galilean for his glory. Well, the next part of the passage hammers home this uh, same point that this new fuller work of the Spirit will bring together the nations in Christ. Look at verse 9. We give more detail here about the uh, multinational mix of of the crowd. Verse 9, there are Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes. Proselytes were Gentiles who had converted to Judaism. 
And then verse 11 goes on. There are Cretans and Arabians. And they say, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. There is no wasted ink in the Bible. The Holy Spirit inspired Luke to write out all of these ancient nations one by one. And part of the purpose is to impress more deeply upon us how Jesus's gift of the Spirit was designed to bring together the nations in him. You know, the text we read in the beginning of the service, do you remember that? It was an hour ago, but if you can go back that far in your mind, you remember that in Revelation 7, we saw that this, this will be the final result of the work of the Spirit in the world. Revelation 7, 9 said there was a great multitude in heaven no one could number from every nation and all tribes and peoples and languages. And they're standing before the throne and the Lamb and they're worshiping. Well, well, that, that's the glorious end goal of the gift of Pentecost. And so on the day of Pentecost, we're, we're giving a tiny glimpse or a foreshadowing of that end goal. People from nations are brought together, and, and they were. They were saved by the Lamb of God. That's what ends up happening in Acts 2 as a result of this miracle of multilingual prophecy. If you look in verse 41... You'll read that uh, from this international crowd, about 3,000 people repent of their sins and put their faith in Christ. They become part of the church, and, and they join this uh, country group of Galileans who had received the Spirit, first of all. Now, if we step back and consider what happened at Pentecost in light of the whole storyline of the Scripture... The unifying purpose of God here is seen even more as we consider how, how this, this miracle of God at Pentecost is, is like a reversal of the curse that he brought on humanity at the Tower of Babel. That event's recorded in Genesis 11. I, I read that earlier in the service. So what happened at the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11 explains why there were many different languages in the world for the disciples to speak at Pentecost. Long before, humanity had had one common language. And it was then a more unified humanity, naturally. But that was a problem because they were unified in godless pride and unified in rebellion against God. And so God confused their single, single language and he gave them many different, uh, mutually unintelligible languages. It was a judgment against them. He scattered humanity into different languages and nations so that they couldn't understand one another's speech. The chapter before Genesis 11 is Genesis 10. And that's a catalog of the different nations that resulted from the judgment of Babel. And there are many commentators on the book of Acts who will tell you that this list of nations that we find in Acts 2, verses 9 through 11, is supposed to intentionally reflect that list of nations in Genesis 10. And that's, a, that's supposed to be a tip-off to help us make this connection between Babel and Pentecost, that this blessing of Pentecost is designed 
as a reversal of the curse of Babel. This is a redemptive reversal. Here's what it means. Reversing Babel is a sign that God is saving mankind from his judgments against their sin in Christ. That's what Babel was. right? The language barrier of Babel that disunited the nations at Pentecost is overcome by Christ's gift, the Spirit, and the nations God scattered because of sin are gathered together because of what Christ did to save man from sin. See that? The Spirit unites men together in Christ from all nations because Jesus has paid for our judgment, paid the penalty for our sin, God's judgments. Now we are um, living in a time when many threads of unity in the world seem to be coming undone. And that's, that's true even within our own nation where we all speak the same language for the most part. So these current uh, rumblings of disunity all around us really should convince us more deeply of this Pentecost lesson, that the tie that is strong enough to bind people together from all over the earth is faith in the work of Christ for salvation from sin. Humanity can be united by shared participation in the gift of the Holy Spirit, which Jesus gives to all who put their faith in him. Babel shows us that the Lord will not let any godless, sin-centered human unity last for long or accomplish very much. It's God's mercy. Pentecost shows us that the Lord has purpose to create and sustain a godly unity of people from all nations in his son, for the glory of his son. It's beautiful. You know, we don't think enough about this reality either, that Christ has given us the gift of his unifying presence. I would venture to guess that for all of us, this reality does not affect the way that we live as much as it should, the way that we think, the way that we love. We were all baptized into one body. We were all made to drink of one spirit. What if you meditated on that the next time you felt a little miffed toward another believer? We were made to drink of one spirit as the gift of Jesus that has saved us both. We dishonor this gift of the Spirit when we're not eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit. With other believers, no matter their nationality or native language or their sex or their age or their social status, are you eager to maintain this unity of the Spirit that, that Christ desires? and gave us the power of the Spirit to, to foster. Now, before you say a quick, no, I don't do that, examine yourself again. And then minister the truth to yourself. We all were made to drink of one Spirit. Now, one final uh, point I want you to see in this first half of Acts 2 is when Christ 
gave His people the gift of the Spirit, He gave them the gift of God's new creation presence. The gift of God's new creation presence. And I'm getting this mainly from the only part of this passage, verses 1 through 21, that we haven't looked at in detail yet in these last two sermons. And and that's in Peter's quotation of the prophet Joel. So, So the crowd of nations, when they hear these languages, they ask, what does this mean? And that puts the ball on the tee for Peter to preach, to explain it, and to proclaim Christ. And so he does by quoting Joel. Look at verse 16. This, what you're seeing and hearing, this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. So so the gift of the Spirit at Pentecost signaled the arrival of the last days. Now look down at verse 19, where Peter continues to quote more predictions of last day happenings from the prophet Joel. And these also help explain the significance of Pentecost. God declared in the last days, verse 19, I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire, and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness, and the moon to blood, before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. Now these descriptions are are of cosmic upheavals of nature, and they're predicted many places in the Bible. Consistently, the Bible says signs like these will accompany the end of the world, The last days. These events represent the final judgment God is bringing on this sin-cursed creation. Before, God makes a new creation. That's the great and magnificent day of the Lord that's coming. The Apostle Peter wrote about this day of the Lord some years after he preached about it here at Pentecost. In 2 Peter 3.10, he said, The day of the Lord will come like a thief. Suddenly, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. And again, in 2 Peter 3, 12, he wrote on the coming day of the Lord, the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting on the other side of that for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. God said through the prophet Joel that the promised outpouring of the Spirit would come in the last days, Acts 2.17, along with the signs of the ends of the world, verses 19 and 20, signs of God's judgment on this present creation, which would precede the establishment of the righteous new creation. Well, how does that relate to what happened at Pentecost? The signs that came with the outpouring of the Spirit at Pentecost showed that God's work to make a new righteous creation was beginning. Even though this present age and this present creation did not totally come to an end on that day, which is rather obvious. 
So ever since Pentecost, there's an overlap of the ages, wherein this old present age continues, doomed to judgment, even as the new coming age has already begun. That's how Peter's telling us to understand the signs of Pentecost in light of Scripture. And so God, to show that that the new creation of the last days was breaking into the present with the gift of the Spirit, at Pentecost, the Lord sent a few flickers, a few flickers or tiny foretastes of these coming cosmic end-time signs, right? We read in verse 19, there will be wonders in the heavens above, signs on the earth below. And a, a few flickers of those happened at Pentecost. Remember the sound of the violent rushing wind from heaven in verse 2. Or remember the appearance of fire above the heads of the disciples, verse 4. That was one of the signs on the earth below in in Joel's prophecy that Peter quoted in verse 19. And I wonder if you remember that not long before Pentecost, God had given another foretaste of one of these end-time signs when Jesus died on the cross In the few final hours Jesus hung there, the Bible tells us there was darkness over the whole land and the sun's light failed. And that also resonates with Joel's prophecy. That's in Luke 23, 44 and 45. And here, Acts 2.20, Peter says, the sun shall be turned to darkness. All right, here's how you should connect all the dots. When Jesus died on the cross... God's final judgment against sin, which is coming on the whole cosmos. It was poured out, you could say, ahead of time on Christ. And God's Son suffered this coming judgment we deserve in our place so that we who trust Him will not have to suffer it on the last day. Because in Him, it's like we've already been through it. And then when Jesus rose from the dead, God's work of making a glorious new creation also began Ahead of time. Of course it did. Shouldn't we expect, based on scriptures, that God's new creation work will immediately follow his final judgment against sin? And so it did in Jesus' death and resurrection. Jesus passed through the final judgment on the cross. Three days later, he rose in a new creation glorified human body, which had been fashioned by the Spirit It was a body totally set free from all the bad effects of sin that come with being a part of this present age and this present creation. And that same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead and made his human body alive and glorious and fit for the new creation, that is the same spirit Jesus poured on his people at Pentecost. The new creation power that rose Jesus from the dead is at work in us. When the Spirit came on the disciples, when when Jesus gives the Spirit to us who believe in him today, you can think of that as part of the first fruits of the age to come. And that's how the Bible puts it elsewhere in Romans 8. Do you remember this? The Apostle Paul is writing about the Spirit's work of making the new creation And he says the whole creation is going to be set free from its bondage to corruption. And in that context, Romans 8 says that we Christians have the first fruits of the Spirit. It's amazing. 
Dr. Tom Schreiner argues that, that that truth is the reason why God chose to pour out his spirit on Pentecost Day in particular. Schreiner writes that in Exodus 23.16, Pentecost is the feast of firstfruits. And so the gift of Pentecost, the spirit, signifies the new age has begun. It is the firstfruits. Even though the new age is not yet consummated, it hasn't come in its fullness yet. This is a marvelous reality. And and you may remember that when Jesus talked to his disciples ahead of time about what was going to happen at Pentecost, when when he promised the Spirit, he used language that was like the language of the promise of the Spirit in Isaiah 32. Isaiah 32, 15, which says the Spirit will be poured out upon us from on high. And Jesus told his disciples, the Spirit will come upon you. You will be clothed with power from on high. And what is the promise of the Spirit in Isaiah 32? It says that then the the wilderness will become a fruitful field, the renewal of creation. And then it says justice and righteousness will be there. It it will be a new creation in which righteousness dwells. So so Jesus, in in prepping us for Pentecost, has, has hinted, this, this will be like the beginnings of the new creation that is coming. This is astounding. If we can wrap our minds around it, as we wait for the Spirit to make all things new, we Christians, we believe the seeds of the coming new creation are already in us. And the first flowers of the coming new creation are budding in our lives Whenever we bear the righteous fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, when this righteousness, when the Spirit creates it in our lives, this is the work of the Spirit that will fill the whole new creation with righteousness. It's happening ahead of time in small ways in the lives of believers today. It's amazing. It's amazing. You know, if you uh, wanted to use the language of the book of Ephesians, Ephesians 1, 13 and 14, We could uh, call this aspect of the gift of Pentecost the gift of God's down payment. Ephesians says that for believers in Christ, the Holy Spirit's given to them as a guarantee or as a down payment for our future inheritance. I think our future inheritance in the new creation. Jesus' gift of the Spirit is like an advanced share in the Spirit's life-giving, glorifying work of making the new heavens and the new earth. So if you trust in Christ, you will certainly pass safely through the final judgment and you will certainly be a part of the eternal, righteous, glorious, new creation that follows. Because if you trust in Christ, you have the Spirit, which means you're already a stakeholder in that new creation. You have a down payment of the portion of the Spirit in you. When Christ gave his people the Spirit, he gave them the gift of God's new creation presence. And having this gift should fill us with hope. It should fill you with hope. Maybe you've noticed that this creation, including our lives, is filled with hardship, sin, and suffering. 
The gift of the Spirit is a promise that better days are coming for you. Since we have this gift. And this gift should also fill us with hope that we really can grow in righteousness. Even while we live in this sin-cursed world and age all around us, you really should be hopeful that in Christ, you can become more and more from one degree to another more righteous because the gift of God's new creation power is in you. While we think too little about the gift of Pentecost, we undervalue it too much, too often. If you have the Pentecost gift of the Spirit, which you have if you trust in Christ, then then we have God indwelling us, God empowering us, God uniting us to all believers all over the world, and God making us new creations, recreating us in righteousness. Who is this gift for? Who can have it? The offer could not be any more wide open. If you look at verse 21, And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. So the prophecy of Joel that that Peter quotes has an invitation baked into it. In these last days of the new work of the Spirit, this truth has come to pass. This wide open invitation is now a reality. Everyone, there, there are no ifs, ands, or buts that's added to this promise. It can stand on its own without qualification. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Call upon his name. Oh, my friends, call upon his name. Pray to Jesus. If God says everyone you can trust, God means it. God is not a liar who says one thing when he means another. If you call on the name of the Lord Jesus, you will be saved, God promises, and it will happen on the basis of Christ's death and resurrection. And that's what Peter is going to explain next in his sermon, Pentecost. And then again, at the end of his sermon, Peter comes back one more time to this wonderful, wide-open promise. So, as we close, look at verse 38 and hear the echo Again, everyone who calls on his name will be saved. Peter said to them, repent, verse 38, and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. I hope that promise means more to you now after this last 45 minutes of sermon. You will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Everyone who repents and trusts in Christ. 4, verse 39, the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off. Everyone, there's that beautiful word again, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. God, thank you for this wonderful gift of Pentecost. Thank you for the gift of the Spirit. We are not worthy to have you indwelling us. 
we know ourselves, and so we know we are not good choices to have you empower us to carry out Christ's mission in the world. But we are comforted to know that you know us better than we know ourselves and that you are a God of grace. And so we receive by faith that you have empowered us by the Spirit. God, we thank you for the unity of the Spirit we have in Christ. Help us to honor you. Help us to honor your Son, Jesus. Help us to honor the Holy Spirit by striving for great unity with one another and with all believers. And thank you for the down payment you've given us that guarantees our hope that the righteousness in the new creation that we will not be excluded despite all of our current unrighteousness because of the work of Christ and the promise of the Spirit in us to make us more righteous in this life and one day to make us perfectly righteous and fit right in to that new creation. Thank you, God, for these wonderful gifts. Help us to understand them better so that we could live more faithfully to you and so that we would love you in our hearts more deeply and be more committed to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.